Hey, welcome to Marketing on the Moon, the only emerging tech marketing podcast teaching you how to implement the right strategies that actually move the needle and how to navigate your marketing career. From securing a promotion to reducing your customer acquisition costs, because gatekeeping is so last year. I'm your host, Regan Olsey, and I've spent almost 10 years specializing in customer acquisition and demand generation across tech, AI, Web3, and hospitality. But I am so much more than my marketing career, and so are you. So if you're ready to tackle the human side of marketing, stick around. I promise you won't want to miss this. Hello and welcome, Jeanette. It is so lovely to have you on Marketing on the Moon. I'm excited to chat about what it looks like to build an inclusive team in Web3. I'll let you introduce yourself here in a second. But what I'm really interested in, and I know a lot of my listeners are interested in, is how do we sustainably, effectively, efficiently build a team, especially in the marketing space in Web3, while continuing to prioritize some of those DE&I efforts along the way? And so maybe from there, will you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background and how you made it into the Web3 space? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Also super excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. So I have spent the last 15 plus years in talent. So I came to the United States, you know, 2006 and set up a specialist STEM recruitment practice. So spent 15 years doing that and was very much partnering with, you know, everything from SMEs through to Fortune 100 um, companies across some major sectors like technology, banking, life sciences. Through that that journey and and as those brands sort of each subsequently grew to be one of the largest in in North America, we built some really interesting partnerships with uh, with some of the key players and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, was obviously, at, particularly at very different times, a, a really key priority for those organizations. My own personal kind of lived experience is, you know, sitting on a on a board for a significant period of time as an only, so as an only woman and an, the only person of color. So have very personal kind of firsthand experience around that. And so... Through those experiences, I kind of stepped away from those businesses about two, two and a half years ago. And the first company that I set up was a, a startup in D&I. So I really wanted to be able to get far more sticky with clients on their D&I journey and help them to diversify their teams from the top down. So that was really the the kind of focus of, of that company. And then kind of similar to to probably lots of people I along the way also became very very fascinated with the premise of web3 and 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 what it can do for the world and so hot on the heels of that other startup in in DNI I set up a, a global blockchain talent acquisition company and those two businesses complement one another and and in a lot of ways, are very much intersecting now because you know there's there's uh, there's there's work to be done within Web three to ensure that it lives up to its promise and truly is inclusive for for everyone. Absolutely, I think your background is so interesting because, as you said, it is this beautiful intersection between an area that Web three desperately needs, which is 
building more inclusive practices, especially into their hiring programs. And then also Web3, which is this new industry. And so being able to take that experience from Web2, I'm sure you've seen a lot. I'm sure you've learned a lot. And I want to touch on that in a second, but maybe so that we kind of level the playing field here for any listeners who may be new to the DE&I space, will you explain what that means to you and to the industry? Yeah, for sure. If we take each of those concepts individually, diversity is the easiest part to measure. It's about looking at who is in the room. It's, it's the easiest thing to to sort of impact on a surface level, right? Because um, you need to add more of, of a, a particular kind of demographic to 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 a team, then um, you can do that in a in a very sort of straightforward way. It's the other pieces that become more challenging, right? Which is making sure that there is an equitable environment for everybody to to thrive, and you do that through you know creating um, an inclusive environment, and so. Um, for for me, I think one of the the challenges that you will see when when other people kind of uh, think about the equity piece is they conflate it with equality, and it, it isn't actually about equality because that assumes that we're all starting from the same place. That is the fundamental difference is equity is about meeting people where they are and making sure that they have the right access to the right resources to thrive within their environment. And then when it comes to to inclusion, which also links into belonging too, you can't show up as your best self unless you feel that that environment is is inclusive, which means that it is welcoming and provides a platform for everybody to to thrive and and feel that they belong and and it's only when you feel that sense of belonging that you can bring your best self to to the table. It's so interesting. I mean, it's that concept of psychological safety, right? Psychological and physical safety too. You're making these accommodations for people so that they can get to the same level as their peers, meaning that one of the best ways equity was described to me, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I'm sure you've seen it, is an image of two people standing at a fence. One is very tall and can see over. The other is very short, like myself. And the tall person does not need a ladder. The short person needs a ladder to see over the fence. And so you give the short person a ladder because the tall person just doesn't need it. And so it means that we're all starting at that same level. And not everyone is given the same opportunity to go to university, right? Like it's very expensive, especially in the U.S. Not everyone is born into the same family from the same means with the same connections. And so the beautiful part about focusing and prioritizing equity and inclusion is you are opening that playing field to folks who are going to bring incredible talent into your team, but just may not have had access to your recruiters prior to filtering through your resume systems because you relied on referrals. Like there are so many different things that you can do. And I'm sure that you see this every single day in your job. Yeah, totally. I love that image. It communicates something in such plain speak that I think makes it very simple for people to really, really understand what that concept really means. The other things that you you just referred to, a big piece of that is as far as whether there's genuine appetite to create equity, you almost have to accept the fact that there is privilege 
And that is a, an incredible barrier to providing an equitable environment because not everybody wants to acknowledge that there is privilege in being able to afford an expensive education and mm -hmm. that growing up in a higher socioeconomic tier than a lower socioeconomic tier gives you access to a network that other people don't have. And, and this is, I think, where it becomes a little bit prickly with people accepting privilege. It's not taking anything away from you. It's simply acknowledging that you've had some advantages that other people have not had. And that's where that, that kind of leveling of the playing field um, comes. So you can't make those strides without that, you know, sort of kind of a, that acknowledgement of that privilege exists. And that's such a great point. How do you typically start to tackle that conversation with whoever your main stakeholders are, whether those are founders or heads of departments? What does that conversation look like? Sometimes organizations, they want to start a conversation at a manager level or at a group level. So it's, it's kind of, hey, can you, we, we want to do, do more to, to kind of create, you know, to make strides in D&I and, and, you know, can, can you do a workshop? For me, if if this doesn't start at the top of an organization, then we're, we're sort of wasting our time. So uh, I, I always say it's, a, you know, it's kind of a precursor to have um, the senior leadership team first go through any programming and that those conversations are, are often really from an education point of view is it's kind of really, really unpacking some of the things that we've started to touch on, right? So getting people to to sort of understand the why, why this is important, what benefits are, and then looking at the constructs that are in place that actually exist that are maybe barriers and inhibitors. And it's only then when you work through those things that you can start to to look at what what changes can we can we make for, for the future. And it isn't about let's change all these things. It's an absolute journey. And so it's, it's kind of deciding what, what does this look like in the short term with full knowledge of where you're trying to, to get to. But there's no point, you know, jumping in and, and trying to check 50 things off, off the list, which is what I think some people try and do a, a full, with the best of intentions, it's about, you know, let's, let's take this in, in kind of stages. But I think that the conversation very, very much starts with education. Absolutely. And like you said, it is that journey. What is the appetite in Web3? Because I'm sure you've taken a lot of those learnings from Web2, where very early on, we did not have inclusive environments. There were, there were many, many, and still are onlys in the room, I think is the way that you described it earlier on. In Web3, I'm hoping that we've started to learn from those past mistakes, but I definitely don't always feel that way. So what is the general industry appetite? Well, we still look at, from a representation point of view, there's clearly a diversity problem within Web3. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. And in some ways, it is beginning to, to mirror big tech. I would say from an appetite point of view, it's interesting. First of all, we're in a really, really tough set of market conditions. And unfortunately, when, when you're in a, a difficult market, it's very easy to um, consider D&I as a luxury. And so 
it, it kind of gets deprioritized. It's a challenging time for many organizations. And that's exactly the reason, ironically, that they should prioritize this. Some of the things that Web3 organizations and companies have been building, who's it for, right? Like it's not really landed and it's not sort of a, a product that has any fit in the marketplace. And maybe if you had different people who could give a different perspective and you hadn't all sat in, in the same classes and gone to the same school together, somebody would have been able to point out, hey, you know, what we're building is so complicated that nobody's ever going to use it, right? And so these are exactly the reasons why we need to have people who look and think differently around the table. Companies definitely do get in a cycle with this economic backdrop for sure, where they are focused on bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. It ultimately ends up becoming a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Take the economy aside. I think there's a lot in the industry right now, a lot of focus around bringing more women into to the space. I have my own podcast, which yep. is designed to, to sort of elevate women in Web3. And so I certainly have a lot of conversations with people where they are quite interested in that component. Oh, like one of my guests, Lauren Ingram, she does a lot within D&I. And we just had a conversation about this where she said, anything beyond women in Web3, forget it, you know. And I unfortunately have to, to agree that we're looking at one facet, really, of diversity. And it's the, the facet that most companies feel comfortable with. But there's a lot of different, there's a lot of other elements of diversity that we need to, to look at. And I don't think that the, the appetite is there, particularly for some of the companies that are at a different stage of maturity. Some of the bigger players, yes, but not really for the broader market. And that's heartbreaking because if we look at something like you know, an example of DEI is even a work from home policy, right? Mm -hmm. You have people who are neurodivergent or just people who get overstimulated easily, who don't function well in an office. I know that for me, if I had a role that required me to be in an office all day, every day, I just, I wouldn't be able to do it because I get very overstimulated. Yeah. But that's even a part of inclusion that people push back against. If you look at the numbers, productivity increases, I don't know what the percentage is, but like a lot, call it. When you allow people to work from home, you allow them to create that space of psychological safety for themselves, that space of deep work, which we all need. And so for them to even push back against that, for me, it just doesn't make sense. I have a hard time putting two and two together, but I have a very similar experience to you where people aren't ready to have that conversation yet. And you yeah. do have people on, you know, social media channels, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, in real life, talking about the benefits of creating inclusive policies or creating inclusive hiring policies. And people just still, they're not able to put that puzzle together. And so I'm curious, what do you think will shift their mindset? Well, it's carrot and stick, I think. So there will be some, there are some, and there will be some standout companies that do have a really diverse team. And as a result of it, they'll build better products and they'll engage better with their community and they will be more profitable. 
And so when other organizations start to to kind of look at that and they start to to see perhaps what they might be missing or the perspective that they might be missing, that obviously encourages a different mindset. And then the other thing is what I, I think about the stick is is when you have a blow up type situation where things go really desperately wrong and you always end up looking at the founded team and thinking it's kind of textbook. They've all gone to school together. They all are around the same age. They're all of the same like racial makeup. And usually it's it's basically a team of pretty much men. That's what happens in and has happened in some of the more high profile kind of instances that that we've had. And so I one of the things that I think of in, in this space is age diversity. You need some people with some gray hairs on the team. And uh, especially when we're talking about risk, mm-hmm. there's a lot that, that individuals who have been around the block more than once are able to really help you to consider some, some risks that you may not have thought of. Sometimes people think, you know, Web3 is kind of a bit of a young person's game and it's really not, you know, it's, it's for everybody. That is one element that I think is is sort of under underestimated. And I read a really interesting article in the Harvard Business Review about age diversity, specifically mm. related to women, where there seems to never be any right age for a woman, right? You in your twenties and your thirties and you're not really taking that seriously. And then you get older and then you're kind of considered to be past your prime. Those same biases don't exist for for men. So it really, it was a really interesting article, definitely resonated with me. And I kind of tested this, uh, you know, with with several women that were in my network. And it was, uh, it was, it was quite profound. That is a great point. To go back to the first piece, it's, I'll say it again, heartbreaking that it's going to take bottom line revenue to change somebody's mind about this, because in my opinion, this is just human nature, right? Like we yeah. should be creating these opportunities. But then to your point, it is. It's typically white, cisgendered, heterosexual males sitting on the boards. They're sitting on founding teams and they're not looking for alternative points of view. And so there are a couple different ways that You can start to solve for that, but I think one of the big ones is, unfortunately, revenue, it's profit, but then it's also once we start seeing people with different backgrounds popping up and being successful on teams. On the second point for the HBR article, I think there is no right age for a woman. We're either too old, we're too young, some want to be mothers. But everyone assumes that everyone wants to be a mother. And so you always have these biases that are immediately put on you before you even walk into a room. And I know that doesn't just happen with women. It happens with other groups across the board. But, you know, again, I think it's going to take us getting on those boards and getting in positions of leadership, power, understanding what it takes to be a strong leader in order to start changing from within, or at least that's the hope. Mm-hmm. On the point around bias for assuming that everyone wants to be a mother, I remember being really, really early in my recruitment career mm-hmm. and speaking mm-hmm. to a hiring manager at a finance company. He said to me, no women between this age and this age. And I said, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. I said, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, I'm sorry. He goes, I can't afford for anyone to be going out on maternity leave. 
So that was the end of that for me in terms of, uh, of any relationship with that client. However, one of the things that's interesting is, has that attitude really gone away or are people just smart enough to know you can't say that anymore? You know, so so that's the, the thing is that there was a, a point in time when people used to say those things years and years ago. And now you, you they they are much, much better at kind of playing the game. But it's an interesting one, that's for sure. I very rarely gasped, but I just <laughs> did a total gasp here because I can't believe that. I will say, though, I do think people have unfortunately just gotten smarter. Like, have you ever watched Working Moms? No, I haven't. Mm -mm. Okay, so it's about this group of moms that are, some of them are working, some of them are stay-at-home moms, but they all have children. And it's about them kind of navigating life together. And one of them is trying to find a new job. And she goes in, and it's this very young company, and she doesn't know how to act. And she has a husband and two kids, but she lies about it. And she sits there and she keeps kind of waffling back and forth over what she's trying to say. And she goes, oh, no, I'm single. Actually, no, sorry, I'm engaged because that's cooler. Oh, no, I definitely don't have kids like trying to get this person yeah, on yeah. board. And then all of a sudden he whips out. He goes, actually, we really love bringing mothers into the team. We find that they bring a certain quality of I forget what he says, but he talks about like how beneficial it actually is to have all these different viewpoints. And you just see her face drop. But it, we all come in with our defenses up because... Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, I, you don't know what to say. You don't mm -hmm. know how to say it. And, you know, you, you want to come across as authentic, but you also don't want to like put your foot in your mouth when you don't even know that you, you are or they mm -hmm. have that bias. Here's yeah. what I say about moms. Uh, if you want to get stuff done, hire a mom. We are the <laughs> ultimate multitaskers or the <laughs> ultimate multitaskers, the ultimate project managers. Like if you want to get it done, you want to get it done to a, to a tight deadline. There's no one that's going to be more focused than a mom, actually, because you don't actually have the luxury of, I'll just get to it. I'll do it at the weekend. I'll meander through. Like we, we got we to gotta hustle and get it done. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. That's so funny. So yeah, you should definitely go and watch that episode of Working Moms do. because I, I think it, it highlights what we're talking about here really nicely. Looking at the time though, I'm going to shift us back to focusing in a little bit on marketing teams. Yeah. One of the questions that I typically get, like I said at the beginning, is how do we grow our marketing team? And I find that as a Web3 marketing consultant, when I come in to have discovery calls, these teams will be trying to hire a CMO, but still be in their seed round or even series A and don't have any of their foundations built out. And so they're almost trying to run before they can walk. What is your experience generally, and then we can get more specific within hiring in the Web3 marketing space and mm -hmm. how does that typically go? A big part of it depends on the composition of the founding team. So the uh, approach and the strategy is really different when it is two tech guys that mm. set up a company versus someone who a more balanced founded team I with maybe somebody did have prior experience within within marketing. What I find is when you have somebody well, understandably who gets and knows marketing, number one, they understand the power of marketing and how important it is to to kind of get it right. And that there's a little bit of a process in terms of how that should go. So it does 
oftentimes feel a lot more um, fractured when there isn't maybe that deep expertise in the founding team around marketing. One of two things I think happens, number one, they hire someone like you, which is the exact right way to do it, which is, you know, let's give us an audit where we're at. Tell us what we need to do. Tell us actually, you know, help us at the right inflection points, hire the right people to do the right jobs. And so mm-hmm. that is the right way to do it. What oftentimes happens, and I do think is a bit of a risk point for the business, is they decide that they need to hire somebody who is, you know, a CMO and actually can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And I've I've had those situations on a number of occasions, right? So the, the what they think they want versus the price tag that that comes with, they can't afford it. Number two, and I actually find this to be much more common, is, and I just had a conversation with a founder on this literally two weeks ago. They decide they want to hire a generalist. And the job of the generalist is everything, you know, is absolutely everything. And yeah. then the salary is going to get you somebody who has got a year of experience out of school. And, and yep. that's how you're going to grow your market. One of the reasons I really like partnering with smaller organizations is on that growth journey, everybody knows what they know. They know technology, they know how to build a product. They don't know how to build a team, they don't know how to hire. And so mm-hmm. often the approach and the role that I end up playing is a little bit more consultative. It is kind of, okay, here's what we've seen. Here's what we've seen works. And really actually helping to craft and define the the spec. And so mm-hmm. sort of like a, a true business partner around talent, to, to be honest with you. But I definitely, I do advise against the, let's just throw absolutely everything onto this job spec. And you probably see this a lot. And let's, let's hire a really junior person to go to go do all of that that's a bit of a recipe for disaster but it is actually how a lot of startups hire in in marketing oh and i run into that all the time and i think that's unfortunate because you do a couple different things when you hire somebody who's not fully there in the role meaning they're not ready to run on their own but then also who doesn't have enough experience to really be a generalist Because when I find that generalist job spec is up, a founder is saying, we want you to excel in each one of these areas. And that's just not possible. I think one of the benefits of, you know, bringing in a consultant or bringing in someone on a fractional basis is cost, obviously. But then you're also getting somebody who can, you know, really split it up and start to eat away at your goals in chunks. And so you're not spending all of the money, but you're still making sure you're hitting those goals. And there's somebody who can help you prioritize Mm -hmm. because that's the thing. When you hire somebody who just doesn't have that experience, how are they meant to be prioritizing? It's completely setting people up for failure. Oh, absolutely. And then you have high levels of turnover. And when you have high levels of turnover, everyone's starting from scratch again, because a lot of marketers, we come in and we have our own ideas and we like to build off of what other people have created, obviously. But you know, everyone thinks that their way is the way that it should be done. And so you, you actually slow yourself down. And I think that's the gap that I constantly try to close with founders is helping them understand 
No, you actually don't want somebody who can, quote, just post on social media. Yeah, like exactly. That is a full role in and of itself. And that takes strategic work. But I, you know, I think I could obviously talk about this subject forever. Let's say a founder is pushing back on you and saying, no, we really need somebody in a leadership position or no, we really need this generalist. How do you continue to approach that conversation? Do you find you are successful in changing their minds or how do you handle that? Yeah, one of the things I'll do is show people the market, right? So so we'll talk about, because I get it, we, you go only up the money that you have. So part of it is let's understand the, what, what you're playing with here from a, a, a budget point of view. And then let's discuss what you can do what you're able to potentially get like this is what that experience um looks like at that campaign because it's about making decisions and and priorities mm -hmm. from an allocation point of view as well so here's your choice here's what the person that can actually do all of those things for you looks like and here's what they cost right and so let's mm -hmm. start to look at what's the ROI and what's the benefit to your business and i do find often what happens is if you're hiring somebody in, in marketing, it's because there's a job to be done and it needs to be done well because I'm, my personal belief is that marketing is the lifeblood of a business and I think you can stand and fall on, on, on those uh, okay. efforts. Oftentimes what will happen is they will look at other ways that, well, how else can we pay for this person then? Because they start to realize we're not going to get what we need for, for this. And the problem is that when you hire somebody who doesn't have experience and you also don't have the experience, it has the impact of the blind leading the blind, right? You know, you're not happy with what's going out, but you don't know enough to be able to provide that person with real direction or real development okay. it just it doesn't work and and more times than not you know I mean everyone wants their business to succeed right so I do find that people are are, are quite open and as I said particularly this stage of their their business I, I'm always amazed because I've spent my whole life around hiring building teams and so you forget what a mammoth task that feels like for people who really mm -hmm. have either never done it or they've worked for a really big company that sort of spoon fed them and mm -hmm. took them through the entire process. So I, I, it, it is a much bigger challenge for people and they're often very, very open and very grateful to have that sense of partnership to work through, even just putting together a spec. Mm -hmm. Thinking about kind of that spec and also being able to work with the clients that I know you love to work with, let's talk about it from the candidate's perspective. What are some of the, I was going to ask for red flags, but I actually want to ask for green flags because you obviously have some companies who are just like a mega no-go, but I think it's more helpful to talk about what are some of the green flags that people can be looking at, you know, where they say, all right, obviously this team is prioritizing the DEI effort, is prioritizing stable and slow growth as they move through their different rounds. Mm -hmm. What would a candidate go and look for from your point of view? So a lot, a lot of it is during that interview experience where the company is 
interviewing you, but you are interviewing the company as well. And so it's about taking ownership for that piece. The first thing is, who's interviewing you? So you have you have this this incredible insight just by looking at the interview panel. So if it's a one and done, which sometimes happens, where it's the founder of the company that's interviewing you, in unless that's a one person company, that is actually a little bit of a red flag, right? Because you want to see who else works in this organization. You want to to get a better idea of the company culture. And if the company culture is just tied to this one founder, then maybe not. So it's really mm-hmm. about the access that you have during the interview process. And to your point around D&I, how diverse is the team? And mm-hmm. asking people, ask during that process what their vision is for the organization, what what's the values, what type of culture are they trying to to create and why, right? So it's not just words on a on a on a board, like why are these mm-hmm. important? Why is this what you're building your team around? And if you don't see that level of diversity that you're looking for in, in the organization, asking them. What are your goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion? What are you doing to get there? It's not a red flag if they're kind of like, we're still learning. Like, that's actually a good answer. When people say we're still learning, we're still trying to get there. But it's it's kind of the defensiveness or the not wanting to talk about it that would, would kind of make me have some pause. I also think that the clarity around the company vision and knowing what they stand for, what the leadership team stands for, you know, what type of communication uh, you can expect to receive from the leadership team and what that onboarding experience is going to look like. All of those those sorts of um, pieces of information that should come out during the, the process, I think, are really important. I had, I had a client maybe about six months back where, well, they wanted to be a client and I I really couldn't understand what value the product would bring to to the world. It was confusing, and it took it took them a long time to explain that you know sort of okay, what do you do? Right? What's what's the problem you're solving? If that answer takes thirty minutes, that's a red flag. The reality is simple sells, and so if. If, if you can't really understand the value that an organization is um, going to bring to the world and the problem that they're solving, you really need to, to give that um, you know, a, a second thought because there are companies left, right and center that are running out of money and there will continue to be companies that are running out of money. And uh, so being really, really clear um, about that. And then number two, you're attaching your name and your brand to it as well. So yeah. we really have to start to think about your social and professional capital. You want to be tied to projects that give you the halo effect as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, you don't really want to put it on the resume. <laughs> I think that's a great point. Okay. So the green flags would be, look at who you're talking to on the team you know, where they come from, what their backgrounds are. If you start with the founder, maybe that's not going to be such a great sign, but it depends on the size of the team. If they can clearly explain their vision, I also think if you can, if you are invested into their vision, if you're invested into what they're working on, that's going to bode well for you. It'll bode well for them. And it means that you have this symbiotic relationship that can form. 
I also think your point about money and funding is a good one. You know, do your research on what kind of funding a company has. Those are the teams that are going to grow. Make sure you're trusting the team. I'm forgetting I mean, one. I the, can't remember. The, the funding is an important one, uh, as in who they are, who they are funded by at this point is is mm. crucial because if you've got a project that is you know backed by reputable VC players, then they'd have gone through a lot of vetting to to have gotten that. So it kind of gives you a little bit more comfort. There are definitely some companies that are opaque about their funding strategy and, and almost defensive. So, you know, that's your red flag. The your green flag is if you can clearly see and there's total transparency around the, who's funded them and how much runway that gives. So don't feel embarrassed to ask that question, right? Like how much runway do you have? Because that's that's part of open and transparent communication. Yep. I think that's one of the major green flags is when they are open and they're transparent about their team, about their learning process around DE&I, about their funding, about, you know, at kind of every step of that journey. And there you have it. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Marketing on the Moon. If you're feeling the marketing vibes, don't forget to subscribe and then share with all of your marketing friends. But if you're craving even more, I have you covered. Every month, I'm pulling together a rundown of my favorite campaigns from across emerging tech, my top marketing tips, career advice, and a sprinkle of general life musings to give you something to talk about at brunch this weekend. Head over to my LinkedIn to get on the list or just click the link in the description. It's up to you. Okay, and don't forget to tune in next week as we dive deeper into the human side of marketing.